0: So, Julian, first thing I would like to do is to congratulate you on having some success. Thank you. That um, is going to take a while and that I uh, invite you for it to be an enjoyable while. But there are some let us say there are some ups and downs that can be done and that most meditators do these ups and downs but that these same ups and downs are in anything that's done by humans as an example i would use for this occasion going on a diet that some people will go on a diet and as soon as they go on a diet or within a week or so, they begin to notice that there's a change. And then later on, um, one of the phases that they could go through is, is that, yeah, I really like that change that I had in the beginning, but now I'm not seeing so much change. Or another way of doing it is is that after a while, people get bored on a diet and then they'll quit. And that's when they start to gain weight again. Mm. I have seen that. Uh, People going on a retreat, for instance, and then have a really, really nice week or two after it, and then they crash. Mm. Almost like going back on binge eating for the dieter. Uh, Why do we do those things? Part of the reason is um, the delusion um, of success rather than actual success. Real success, we have to monitor and recognize that, yes, it's there, uh, and that we take delight in that success. But we also recognize that we had to put in some right effort in order to get to that right success and that we have to continue to put in that right effort. So that's what this talk is is about is to encourage you now that you've gotten started. To continue on to persist to continue practice. Okay, and that um, it is generally uh, quite easy or convenient for a student to get to a fairly high state and then say, Yippee, kayo, kaye, look at how great that I am now. And then they kind of forget practice. And that's when things start to go down again. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure that we're continuing to practice, mm-hmm. continuing to remember, and that. Um, on that same topic, um, along with remembering to practice and remembering to stay in it, one of the things that um, I have not actually, um, let us say, dwelt on or harped on enough with students over the years is something that I want to introduce to you, and that the way that it's introduced in the suttas is a very interesting uh, way in the sense that they talk about there are five ways to get into first jhana now we've already discussed first jhana in the sense that number one the mind is free from hindrances number two that we have a uh, satisfaction and a winner's attitude a success a pity um that we also have a mind that's fit for work, where the mind can be applied and sustained. Now, uh, this this sutta mentions that there are five ways of bringing the mind into this unified state of first jhana. And only one of them, and in fact the last one on the list, is the way that we practice meditation in the West. It's sort of like the last resort, and that there are four other ways for one to get into the first jhana uh, much easier. And we could also say that uh, much of our practice has to do with learning how to easily get into the first jhana and how to maintain that state of first jhana and so this is part of the skills that we are developing and that in general the way that we practice this is by sitting down in meditation in an in a kind of an ordinary way uh, which means that we probably come in from the day or maybe we've um, uh, been traveling to a retreat center where we're going to do a weekly meditation sitting or whatever like that. And most people who come in, that in fact, the traditions that I have seen is is that the, the students will sit first and then have a Dhamma talk. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these places, but generally that's how they do it. Um, I've I've noticed that with the old Fosdale uh, in California and many others who do a weekly practice uh, or sitting practices that everybody comes in and sits first and then has the Dhamma talk afterwards. I'm not sure why they do that. But let's go back to the sutta for a moment and look at the items on the list the first one that we're going to look at is an item on the list that very much is like what we're doing right to this very minute, in the sense of um a dhamma discussion between um two friends one who knows the dhamma and has been in it longer than the other and is sharing But part of the intention of that, and in fact, it doesn't even matter what the intention of the teacher is. What really matters is how the student is receiving it. So if the student is receiving the Dhamma uh, well and gets inspired from it, then that inspiration, while he is listening to the Dhamma, will help push him right into the first jhana. Why is that? Well, because we by definition, the Dhamma is already wholesome. Mm -hmm. It's already wholesome. Uh, It's not a hindrance. And so by uh, talking about, by reflecting upon the Dhamma, by having a conversation with the Dhamma between the teacher and the student, that the student becomes inspired. Mm. Aha! I got it. I understand things like that. This is, this is part of uh, the way of practice. But it's also possible, number two, that in this conversation, that the teacher himself, by teaching the Dhamma and going over the Dhamma, reflecting upon the Dhamma, uh, uh, pulling out the details of the Dhamma from his memory, he too can become delighted in the Dhamma, He, too, can gain inspiration, and he, too, can go right into first jhana while he is teaching the Dhamma. In fact, that's the easy and best way to do it, (laughs) because the mind is sharp and focused and and, uh, capable of keeping track of things. All right. So... Then there is another way of doing it, and that is what you normally see in many uh, Asian wats um, and Thai wats is they will have a morning and an evening chanting. And in the morning chanting and in the evening chanting, though they're different, every morning they do basically the same thing with maybe a little bit of an addition at the end, and the same thing that with the evening chanting. Now these chants are well known not just in the sense of they memorize the Pali but they the students who are chanting these things know what the suttas uh, are they are that are uh, being chanted and this stuff that's being chanted so they can gain um, many things from this one of the uh, aspects of the, the chanting then would be that it can focus the mind because you're actually focusing on this, uh, the chanting and the sutras, but it also can bring up inspiration. So when the chanting is done right, with the right attitude, and I know that some students will go into the chanting saying, oh, hum, this is what they do here, I'll put up with it.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: but, but if they can get into it and really begin to enjoy the Dhamma, understand what they're chanting, reflect upon it, then insight will grow, and with that inspiration. And so after that chanting, now the mind is really fit for work, and that's when they sit. They only sit about 20 minutes, but they've been chanting for a while also. Okay, and so this is another way, the chanting, and the reflection upon what the chanting means, which means we're doing Dhamma, And that, too, will also bring one into first jhana. But there is yet a fourth way of doing it. And that is, is that you may not even be chanting, and you may not be sitting in conversation with your teacher or a student, and yet you're thinking about the dhamma. You're mulling over the dhamma. You're putting together the Dhamma. You're going over the Four Noble Truths and going over the Eightfold Noble Path and and asking yourself the, the questions is, am I investigating? Is this Shati? Is this Dukkha? Is this end of Dukkha? Those kind of questions and asking ourselves that. And you can actually be sitting on a train. It's also even possible that you're driving a car. And you can actually, with the thoughts and reflections on the Dhamma, fall into a really good state. I use the word fall, sorry, that's not actually, you can place yourself into a good state. So I wanted to add that to it because this is in fact the real, uh, it's an interesting way to do it, but this is the real introduction to the Dhamma that many, many people will try to separate meditation from the Dhamma. In fact, there's a whole lot of commercial organizations that downright separate them completely. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Things like mindfulness-based stress reduction. Okay, you can hear stress is dukkha, reduction is dukkha naroda through sati, and you'd think that they were teaching the Dhamma. But they don't. All they're teaching is just mindfulness and then it kind of gets stylized in their own way. And they're not really teaching the Dhamma, which means the students, even though they're practicing this, they never really get into the first jhana anyway, because they're not really in that wholesome state of mind. You also will have it, I even know of one organization that that makes money uh, by doing seminars to teach mindfulness to business people, so that they can be better at business, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's going to be effective one way or the other. It sounds to me like that it's really dangerous for them to do that if they introduce mindfulness to their employees, the employees may start quitting one by one yeah, <laughs> and finding something better. better to do with their time exactly yeah okay, so. There's this commercialization that you find in the West that kind of tries to separate the Dhamma from meditation and making meditation the its cadets and the Dhamma they don't need so much. But in fact, the way that uh, Achan Po and I have have talked about it, that what we're doing here on, on Skype is telling about the Dhamma. In a friendly way. It's not necessarily a big teacher or anything like that. It's just kind of telling the Dhamma. And that's what we do. And so in a way, I'm not a meditation teacher. I don't teach meditation.
1: He's talking about Dhamma.
0: But I teach Dhamma. And part of Dhamma is um, uh, to learn the Dhamma, to get the mind in the state for the Dhamma, is Anapanasati. Once we're ready for the Dhamma, now we can use Dhamma as our meditation, in fact, if you want to think of it like that. That we incorporate Anapanasati right into the Dhamma so that we actually are practicing the Eightfold Noble Path when we're practicing Anapanasati and we know it. And we keep investigating in the sense of, is this Dukkha? Is my mind got hindrances or not? Mm -hmm. We also look at the nature of this suffering. You know, what is the cause of this? Why, if there is no self in all of the aggregates, why do I wind up with the delusional feeling that there is a self there? And so this is the way that we begin to look into uh, into the Dhamma deeper to find out that, oh, the real reason... Why I suffer is because I'm selfish. If I weren't selfish, then I wouldn't suffer. Mm. Clear example of that. You've got a brother. He comes and he wants to borrow $500. Okay. Now let's consider that $500 for a moment. In some cases, $500 is a lot of money. In other cases, it's not. In some cases, you may have $500, and in other cases, you don't. But the issue is is that your brother has come to ask for $500. If you say yes, then you're feeling generous, and he feels glad because he knows that you'll, you'll come up with it and you'll help him out. And so everybody feels good. You're being altruistic. You're not being selfish. He's feeling grateful and everybody's happy. If you say no, now that's being selfish and he's unhappy and so are you. Hmm. Right? Why are you unhappy? You just got $500 that you thought you didn't have by not giving it to him. So you're actually $500 better better off than you were a minute ago. But we don't think about it like that. We think about it uh, as, oh, no, I don't have it, or I can't afford it, Mm -hmm. or I need it. My level of security will go down, and I will be in danger if I give him that money, and he may not pay me back. You hear all of this selfishness in there. Mm -hmm. I, me, my, it's dangerous for me. But if we don't think about it like that, if we think about it from the perspective of generosity, then we'll say, sure. Yeah, I'll I'll help you get 500. Now, here's the point. You may not actually have 500, but saying yes to him is an altruistic, heartfelt, right, good thing to do. And telling him no is uh, a disappointment. It's dukkha. It's suffering for both sides. And whether you've got the $500 or not, almost is irrelevant. Okay. It's not about the money, it's about how you feel and your generosity. Okay, okay so this is what we mean by where does self come from? And this is part of the Dhamma is to find out And all of this is um, actually the discussion of the second noble truth. What's the cause of all of this? Why can't can't people be happy all the time? The answer is because they don't really know that they have a choice. Mm. And when uh, when it's time to have the choice to be happy, people don't know that they have the choice right then. Okay, so basically what the Dhamma is, that it is looking at all of the ways and all the reasons why we should wake up to see what's going on. Because it's really valuable to do so. And that in fact the Dhamma itself is wholesome. And so we're already, by by contemplating the Dhamma, we're already in states of wholesome. Now, uh, that's not the same as asking questions about the Dhamma, because asking questions about the Dhamma automatically indicate that there is confusion, which means there is doubt, and that's a hindrance. So having questions about the Dhamma should be resolved and resolved quickly, because when they are resolved, then the doubt goes away. Sometimes you can just think your, th- your way right through that doubt. Other times it needs, uh, um, let us say, um, some other outside source to verify. And there's many different ways of, of, of sourcing. I use Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa as a source. I trust him that much. But mostly this, the, the trust comes from the suttas. But sometimes I even want to go over to the other island with Achan Po and discuss things with him. Mm-hmm. Because we want to get this doubt cleared up rather than having lingering doubts about things. And that basically that's one of the major sources of suffering is these lingering doubts. We don't know kind of which way to go. And so we don't do what we, in other words, A would be good B would be good, but I don't know which to do, A or B, and so I don't do either one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that, that would be um, one of the, the situations, is, is that we need to gain confidence in the Dhamma by looking at it, mulling over it, understanding it, and putting it in, into practice, both in the sense of this is our, becomes our meditation as well. Now, um, some people will talk about Anapanasati as taking the breath as the object. That's absolutely the case for the beginner, for the intermediate, and for the adept. Anapanasati and having uh, the breath as an object is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. But it's not the only object. But it should be the one at the top of the list every time. But it's not the only object. That's where a lot of students become confused because they think that it's the only object. And no, it's not the only object, that in fact it should be the number one object just to get us grounded. That in fact, if you want to look at it this way. Anapanasati and the 16 stages of Anapanasati would be those various other objects because they're all in fact listed as skills to be developed. But most of the objects on the uh, Anapanasati directly overlap with both the Eightfold Noble Path and also it overlaps with the Satipatthana. And it also overlaps in with the Seven Factors of Enlightenment.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so there's a lot of overlap. That we practice the Eightfold Noble Path by practicing Anapanasati. But we do Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the Sambojana, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And then we practice the Four Foundations of Mindfulness with Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, what that actually means with that issue of the fulfillment, that with the seven factors of enlightenment, those seven factors, which we will talk about in detail uh, on another occasion, are actually the culmination of the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path. That at one time I did have some confusion, why is the Eightfold Noble Path in the Satipatthana Sutta and not in the Anapanasati Sutta, there in that place, in that structure, is this, uh, the Sambojana, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. The answer to that is is that um, the Eightfold Noble Path is the method to practice. And that the seven factors of enlightenment is the results of that correct practice over a long period of time.
1: Mm-hmm. Makes sense.
0: Okay, does that make sense? That's why it starts out with number one is sati, but the word the verb that's used is unremitting sati. That's not a verb, that's a adverb. Unremitting sati. What does that mean? It doesn't mean constant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It means unremitting, which means it keeps coming back and keeps coming back, and hopefully it keeps coming back when we need it the most.
1: It's like a the diligence or determination.
0: Right. That's, but that's the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path, is when Sati is going to be there available. Now... This is one of the places where we actually have a chronological order. Mm -hmm. Every place else, many people think that there's a chronological order, where in fact there's not. Mm -hmm. It's a structural order. Anapanasati is in fact a structural order. But it is not to be practiced or to um, have the fulfillment in that order. But we can see that if we cannot wake up, we can't do the rest of it. So Satya is always number one. The second one is always investigation, to wake up and to investigate. Once the path is at this level of fulfillment, then we no longer have right effort as an effort, but rather it becomes energetic. It's almost like that uh, uh, we built up a muscle. So then in the beginning, we pick up a weight. Let's say the beginner walks into the um, uh, the training program uh, at the gym and somebody's left a five pound dumbbell on the floor. And he decides he's going to pick it up and put it into the rack. And when he picks it up, he realizes how heavy it is. Okay. okay. But a year later, after the training, the guy walks back into the gym and now there's another five pound dumbbell on the floor and he picks it up and gingerly and leisurely puts it up. He's got the energy now to do it. In the first place, it took effort. Now it's energetic. This is what we're looking for is just that your effort by exercising it over and over and over again will make things really easy for you and so it becomes energetic automatic in fact it's almost like that um that when sati comes for taking a deep breath the sati comes in combination with the deep breath that you're already taking the deep breath Mm -hmm. you don't have to remember to take a deep breath and then get up the effort to take the deep breath and then take it it's almost like that they they come up together because you've got the effort already wired now. Now it's energetic. Mm -hmm. Along with that then the next item on the list is now piti. Now in this regard it's actually piti sukha. So that with the right effort that actually is an energetic thing, we actually through right sati and through uh, unremitting sati, unremitting investigation and unremitting effort, our unremitting, actually, not effort. We don't want unremitting effort. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. But rather unremitting energy. Now, sati becomes easy. We automatically fall into a state of happiness and joy. This is when we got the path down. This is how how we go for it. Now, there are other items on the list of the uh, seven factors of enlightenment. We've covered four of them, and we'll cover the others in detail. But the reason that I miss m- mentioning this is to get you to, to understand that the Dhamma of the Buddha is, is kind of a package, and it is set. There's only so much to it. When I'm talking to a student, let's see, a student calls and we have fifty different conversations. Generally, I can talk, I can cover the whole dhamma maybe in ten conversations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. But I had needed to go over them five times, <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again. That's how it gets, is because it it sinks in, because this stuff is, while it's small, closed, and fixed. It's extremely um, sophisticated and life-changing. Hmm. It's quite life-changing. Your whole life, in fact, you are, are, can already see that your life is under change now. You're hmm. going off in a different direction than you were when you first started. Yeah, I would say so. And the, the, and the deeper into the Dhamma that you go, what that actually means is basically your enthusiasm is going to grow. And that enthusiasm will grow with your confidence. And the confidence comes from correct practice and the success of correct practice. And so we want to continue with that success. We want to continue to practice correctly. But just like a dieter who looks in the mirror and says, hey, I look really good now. And he goes off his diet and two weeks later he's getting fat and a month later he's worse off than he was before his year-long diet, okay? This is exactly what will happen to us if we get too complacent, that we have to keep practicing because of these old habits that um, are in the mind, just like um, with the diet, the body has a memory. And the body will try to go back to that old memory. Let's say somebody spent 30 years being fat. And then they spent a year on a diet. It's
1: not enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. That one-year diet's not going to be enough. They need to continue that diet. But it may be modified. But they've still got to be on the diet. They have to remember that they're on the diet. They have to keep practicing on that diet. Otherwise they'll go right back, and that's what normally happens with people. Very, very rarely does somebody lose the weight, and then they keep it off. One of the famous ones is Oprah. I think Oprah has lost maybe a 1,000 pounds in her life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, probably.
0: And it keeps coming back because of that. Okay, so this is actually something that we need to be aware of within our own practice of meditation that we cannot get complacent with our practice. Another example of that, (laughs) this is one of the cute ones. Imagine the old Rishi that hasn't uh, shaved his head, cut his hair, or uh, tended to his beard for many years.
1: Rishi? What's that? Uh,
0: uh, in In the Thai language, it's Rusi. Um, okay, you've heard the name Rishikesh. Yes, yeah. Rishi. Okay, the the home of the Rishi. Okay. The Rishis are uh, all throughout Southeast Asia. They're the hermits, the Hindu priests or Swamis. They don't ever cut their hair. Okay. Westerners sometimes like doing it that way.
1: Yeah, that's a trend.
0: Okay, that's a Rishi. All right, so now the Rishi, is time for him to shave his beard. How many razors, Gillette razors, is it going to take to shave that beard? I have no idea. And, and in fact, the Rishi may be, in fact, have insects and bugs and all kinds of stuff in that beard. And so the skin is going to be irritated. It's going to take a long time for that shave. And in fact, it may even last over a course of days. He may get it down to the condition that yours is in the first day, and then later a little bit more. Here's the point, that if he keeps shaving regularly, and on for, for shaving that would be like once a day, then he would have no problem. But if he stops shaving, the beard's going to come back. This is the habit of the, uh, the human body and the way the DNAs grow hair. Mm. Just like the DNA grows fear, anguish, and suffering. And so we have to keep shaving it and keep shaving it and keep shaving it off with the Dhamma. This is a way of looking at it. The Dhamma, in fact, is like a knife. In fact, that's exactly what uh, <laughs> um, the word kusala means in Nepali. There's yeah. things that are wholesome are kusala, and the things that are unwholesome are ekusala. The kusala, actually, uh, the word comes from a heavy-duty grass, something like lemongrass, except that it's got uh, heavy, spiky edges on it. And uh, what they do is they'll put it under a heavy a brick or a block or whatever like that to um uh, to let it dry out and get firm and then they can use it for a knife Mm. one of the ways that they use it for a knife would be like for cutting bread or cutting uh food cutting vegetables that kind of thing but you can't cut wood with it Mm. yeah okay so this idea of a of kusala or a knife means that you can cut into it or that you can diagnose it. You can see what it is. And a kusala means unwholesome, which means that uh, it, it it can't be cut into. You can't see it very well. Mm-hmm. And so we can think of then Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talked about um, knife language and... Um, balloon language. And in that regard, he was talking about Dhamma language versus ordinary language. Mm, And he likens ordinary language. And what is ordinary language? The language that people speak all the time, business language, um, government language, uh, politic language, uh, church language, all kinds of uh, ordinary language would be balloon language. And what's the idea of the balloon? Well, the balloon looks nice, it's beautiful, but it'll blow up in your face. The <laughs>
1: uh, yeah.
0: where knife language or Dhamma language means that it cuts into things, it looks at the real thing, it shaves off the outer surface so that we can get down to the heartwood. And so we talk about balloon language as ordinary language because it doesn't—it has no effect. But dhamma language is knife language, and it'll cut right into things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we think then of kusala as that which can be looked into, can delved into. And so um, we begin to understand that oh. What we're actually thinking about now is is that it's much more wholesome to think about the Dhamma than it is to think ordinary things that, in fact, ordinary things may blow up in my face, take me back into hindrances. But I'm thinking about the Dhamma, contemplating the Dhamma, mulling over the Dhamma, seeing how the Dhamma fits together. That's really a wholesome way of spending our time. And not only that, but at any moment, we're likely to get inspired and drop right into a really nice state because we're having wholesome thoughts. Mm. So I'm introducing to you now a new way of thinking that Buddhism and the Dhamma and all of that is not meditation. But rather meditation is sort of like um, uh, the dog here on the page. The meditation is like pulling that or grabbing that page so we can get the Dhamma out. It's just a corner. It's just a little bit of the Dhamma. And so the the Dhamma is actually much larger than meditation. And this is also the reason why many people meditate uh, or have a meditation practice that doesn't get them very much. It doesn't lead them anywhere. But you've already gotten to the point of recognizing that this is actually useful. You're actually getting benefit already out of it. So we need to make sure that we're going to continue to to do that. You're like the dieter that's looked in the mirror for the first time after being on a couple of weeks of diet. And you say, hey, look at that. (laughs) This is looking pretty good. Okay. But recognize that you're going to have a long, long process in front of you that's going to continue to give good results. But you have to continue to be on the diet of keeping unwholesome mental
1: food off your plate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a good thing for me to keep in mind all the time.
0: (laughs) That, hey, we're Dhamma dudes here. Hey, we're going to follow the Dhamma. We're going to do the wholesome.
1: So in the states of, um, in the lower states that I'm going to, you know, inevitably confront, um, the answer to these hindrances. I hope
0: you don't. (laughs) I hope you don't confront them. But when I hope you see them coming and step out of their way and let them pass right by.
1: Okay. Uh, that that's the answer uh, essentially that is
0: uh, <laughs> you see, that's what a lot of people think they have to do is they have to confront. And so by confronting a um, let us say a hindrance, that generally means that we got to stay in that hindrance for it to be there for us to confront it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a big mistake. And so when you use the word confront, I said, "Oh, oh, we got to do something with that." <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. No, we're not. We're not going to confront it. When we talk about investigation, there is only a little bit of investigation to be done. But you need to be very good at this investigation so that you can make this investigation and therefore determination fairly quickly. Which means we have to get good at investigating and figuring out what is Dukkha and what is not Dukkha. This is Dukkha is the way that the Buddha is talking about it in the sense of look at it. But that's all we do. Once we got it and once we understand that it's Dukkha, now it doesn't need to be confronted. It can be dropped, it can be ignored, it can be thrown out. Okay? Instead of confronting it, I, while I'm confronting it, I want to feel. So now, I can feel good in it. I didn't have to. I just do <laughs> You've
1: cut off slightly. I Can you still hear me? I can still hear you. Okay. okay. Um, the connection well, is a I little shaky right now. Okay. What I said sitting on head was... Why fight with? It? It's still it's still uh, difficult to hear you. Maybe um. I'll turn my video off. Okay.
0: Okay. So maybe you can get it better
1: now. Hmm. It's still it's still uh, a little bit choppy. Maybe uh, we can reconnect. Or, All right. uh, okay. Uh, I'll call you right back.
0: Okay.